I begin with a quotation. The dogma of Christ's deity turned Jesus into a Hellenistic redeemer God, and thus a myth was propagated behind which the historical Jesus completely disappeared. That's a quotation from Martin Werner in his book, The Formation of Christian Dogma. The modern debate, the question of the pre-existence of Christ, is of fundamental importance to any Christological discussion, since it bears directly on issues related to the Incarnation and the Trinity. If the personal subject, who is Jesus, existed as the Eternal Son before his birth, in what sense did a new person originate in Mary's womb? If a new personality was conceived by Mary under the influence of the Holy Spirit, would not Jesus be bipersonal? Does the traditional definition of Jesus as God with what they call an impersonal human nature, does this allow the Savior to be a genuinely human person? I note that A.T. Hansen, having been taught the Chalcedonian formula in college, abandoned the whole idea as incoherent. you find that in his book, Grace and Truth, written in 1975. Does the traditional definition of Jesus as God with what they call an impersonal human nature allow the Savior to be a genuinely human person, the descendant of David, and therefore identifiable as the one who is to come, as Matthew 11.3 says? These and other Christological questions have been raised throughout Christian history, but in modern times with greater intensity and sophistication since the publication in 1977 of The Myth of God Incarnate and its sequel, Incarnation and Myth, The Debate Continued, written in 1979. A welcome voice in the continuing debate, which has far-reaching implications for the very heart of Christianity, is that of James Dunn. His widely acclaimed Christology in the Making, written in 1980, challenges us to consider how far, for centuries, we may have been reading back the later formulations of the church councils into the New Testament documents. James Dunn invites us to reflect on whether we have not unwittingly fixed on one form of Christology, supposedly found in John, and then read it back into the other New Testament writers, producing a homogenized view of Jesus, which blots out the individuality of the New Testament witnesses and builds an inflexible and very possibly distorted Christology on a fraction of the evidence. The question raised by James Dunn reminds us of James Barr's observation that 
traditional and so-called orthodox theologies seldom worked according to the proportions of the biblical material. On the contrary, they commonly elevated to a key position in their structures elements which had comparatively slight and even marginal representation within the biblical material. In this sense, traditional orthodoxy is a monumental example of the picking and choosing which it deprecates in others. That's from the book by James Barr on Holy Scripture, Canon Authority Criticism, written in 1983. Listening to the various participants in the debate, one is impressed by the honesty of the searching questions they are prepared to ask. Dunn, for example, finds no pre-existent Jesus in Paul, but rescues a traditional view in John. Only in John, after conceding that the prologue in its original form does not necessitate a belief in a real, as distinct from an ideal or notional pre-existence for Jesus. His discussion at this point is crucially important as presenting a different way of reading John 1.14 and John chapter 1 verses 1 and 2, which the long-standing traditional understanding of these verses make hard to grasp at first hearing. James Dunn says this, the conclusion which seems to emerge from our analysis thus far is that it's only with verse 14 of John 1 that we can begin to speak of the personal logos. The poem uses rather impersonal language, like became flesh. Prior to verse 14, we are in the same realm as pre-Christian talk about wisdom and logos. The same language and ideas that we find in the wisdom tradition and in Philo, where, as we have seen, we are dealing with personification rather than persons. Personified actions of God rather than an individual divine being as such. The point is obscured, says James Dunn, by the fact that we have to translate the masculine logos as he throughout the poem. But if we translate Logos as God's utterance instead, it would become clearer that the poem did not necessarily intend the Logos of verses 1 to 13 to be thought of as a personal being. The revolutionary significance of verse 14 may well be that it marks not only the transition in the thought of the poem from pre-existence to incarnation, but also the transition from impersonal personification to actual person. Dr. John Robinson, in his Dun on John, in the Theology magazine of 1982, does not find literal pre-existence anywhere in John's Gospel or elsewhere in the New Testament. His solution seems attractive, since if, with Dunn, 
we do not find pre-existence in Paul, it would be reasonable to expect the absence of pre-existence in John. But those who take the New Testament canon as a unified, despite differences of emphasis, a unified testimony to its central figure, it is hard to believe that the apostles would have been divided on such a fundamental question about the nature of Jesus, about who Jesus is and was. A person who pre-exists himself is a very different being from one who comes into existence in his mother's womb. Hence the underlying concern about the real humanity of the traditional Jesus and an awareness of the dangers of docetism, that's to say, the error that Jesus only appeared to be human but really wasn't, and that docetism characterizes much of the current discussion. A number of biases seem to plague Dunn's reviewers. It is thought that a so-called high Christology must make Jesus fully God in the classical sense, and that any Christology which starts with his humanity is said to be low. But this begs the question, the highest Christology must be that which is true to the New Testament data. In the reviewers' minds, the sending language of Galatians 4 verse 4 and Romans 8 3 seem automatically to imply pre-existence. A review of Dunn in Themelios 8 in 1982, the idea that in Galatians 4 verse 4, the X denotes a prior presence with the sender, finds no support. One senses in the background the influence of Philippians 2, 5 to 11, thought by many to be a proof text for literal pre-existence. Leon Morris makes every effort to be fair to Dunn, but doubtful whether he has allowed himself enough time to, so to speak, live with Dunn's perspective on Philippians 2. Leon Morris admits that the Church's definitive statements have been with us all our lives. But has he fully reckoned with the power which such prolonged exposure to the so-called right view can exercise over the faculty of judgment. Morris asks this, how could Jesus come unless he existed before he came? An expression like the Son of Man came to seek and save that which is lost. Luke 19 verse 10 seems to mean more than that Jesus was conscious of a divine mission. But did, for example, Nicodemus think of Jesus as pre-existent when he said, we know that you are a teacher come from God? John 3 verse 2. The dismissal of Dunn's careful examination of these points is disappointing. An illuminating analysis of the Johannine pre-existence language is found in chapter 5 of John Robinson's Human Face of God, written in 1973. 
Leon Morris reveals that he had not before considered that Philippians 2 might not refer to pre-existence. But now that Dunn points it out, he says, I cannot accept it. He does not have space to tell us why Dunn is wrong, nor, as far as I know, has he answered the detailed arguments presented by Talbot, George Howard, and above all, J. Murphy O'Connor, who are among many who find no reference to personal pre-existence in Philippians 2. The reservations of Morris Wiles about traditional views of pre-existence stem from, and I quote here, the distorting effect on the understanding of the figure of Jesus, which arises when he is seen as the Son of God, conscious of his existence with the Father before the world was made. He fears that the efforts of the fathers to integrate the Logos Son into a monotheistic system may not have been successful. Wiles here puts his finger on the crucial issue when he says, as other strands of Judaism presented the Torah as pre-existent in order to claim its continuity with and sameness as the archetypal purposes of God, so John presents Christ as pre-existent. He adds, since Christ was a conscious being and not an inanimate object like a scroll, it is naturally an extension of the same parabolic logic to present Christ as conscious of his pre-existence. It's obviously only a very short step from the notion of pre-existence as foreordination to the idea of a literally pre-existing hypostasis, in some way a being distinct from God, who in later human life can remember his pre-life. It is just this development of the pre-existence concept which Morris Wiles, J.A.T. Robinson, and Jeffrey Lamp seek to avoid because of the dangers of docetism and even bi-theism. With Dunn, we may certainly agree that, and I quote, Initially, at least, Christ was not thought of as a divine being who had pre-existed with God, but as the climactic embodiment of God's power and purpose, God's clearest self-expression, God's last word. We must reckon seriously with the possibility that there is in fact a common apostolic view of the person of Christ found with different emphasis throughout the New Testament, both initially and finally. An evolution from low to high should not be presupposed. In fact, it is very hard to believe that Peter, a leading Christian spokesman, did not possess the highest and best Christology with which to initiate the New Testament Church. 
The Christology of Peter's sermon in Acts should be considered as high. Did the classical view of Jesus' pre-existence have its origin in canonical scripture? Or is it the result of a transition of conceptualization occurring when early Gnosticism found personal pre-existence more congenial than New Testament orthodoxy. In our attempt to answer the question, we bear in mind that nothing is easier than for divine titles to pass from one religion to another and for their original meaning to be forgotten. The same would be true of ideas about Jesus. We must not overlook the fact that Christianity was guided almost exclusively by Jews during the New Testament period and thereafter almost entirely by Gentiles. Number two, real or notional pre-existence. As a preliminary to our discussion, we must note the oddity of a method which in order to establish real pre-existence for Jesus seems to occupy itself almost exclusively with a small number of texts in John's Gospel and a handful of verses in Paul. Ought not a primary factor in the investigation to be the broad evidence of the New Testament? It is widely agreed that Luke writes his two volumes with a view to presenting the faith to his contemporaries. It is unreasonable to think that he does not include his own Christology. He also claims, Luke does, in the book of Acts, to show us Peter's view of Jesus. In addition, we have the epistles of Peter, from which we can confirm the picture drawn in the Acts sermons. There's also good prima facie evidence that Luke, as traveling companion of Paul, would have shared Paul's Christology. Another primary consideration is the fact that apostolic Christology shows plain evidence of being based on the portrait of the one who is to come provided by the Old Testament. Peter and Paul in Acts and John labor to show that Jesus is the one who fits the categories delineated by Deuteronomy 18 verses 15 to 18 and Psalm 2 and Psalm 8 and Psalm 110. The prophet who speaks God's words, Deuteronomy 18, 15 to 18, may well be the stimulus for all that John recognizes in Jesus as the agent of God, following the Jewish concept of the shaliach, or agent. See, for example, Raymond Brown on John in the Anchor Bible series and his reference to Peter Borgen, God's agent in the fourth gospel by Borgen in Religions in Antiquity, written in 1968. The practice, he adds, of treating the agent 
as though he was the principal, is of the greatest importance for New Testament Christology. It was, after all, the one of whom Moses had written in the law, who was recognized as the Christ, John 1, verse 45. This provides the framework for New Testament Christology. Psalm 110 is vastly important for New Testament Christians and should be central in any examination of New Testament Christology. In addition, since Messiah is by far the dominant category of the entire New Testament witness, it would be proper to exhaust that title and its functional implications before sources outside the Old Testament are sought to explain Jesus. Alan Siegel, a Jewish commentator, seems to be almost alone in calling our attention to the, what he calls, one major way in which the early church created its Christology, namely by exegesis of the Old Testament passages re-understood as messianic prophecies. Done, he says, misses a crucial dimension in which Christianity was both unique and typically a sectarian group of its day in the way it made hermeneutical use of the biblical text to understand its historical experience. Since it's clear that the New Testament's own exegetical dynamic is found in the application of the Old Testament categories to the one who is to come, it's essential to consider whether the Old Testament contains any category for the personal existence of the Messiah before his birth. The major evidence clearly points to a human ruler of the line of David, supernaturally endowed with the Spirit and certainly bearing divine titles, 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9, verse 6, and Isaiah 11, 1 to 5, though foreseen in vision as Son of Man in Daniel 7. I note that the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is the saints collectively, not excluding the Messiah. The Son of Man receives the kingdom in verse 14, and the saints are given it in verse 22. This is exactly what the New Testament expects. The Messiah and the saints will rule together in the post-Parousia kingdom. Luke 22, 28-30, Matthew 19, verse 28, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2, 2 Timothy 2, verse 12, Revelation 2, verse 26, and Revelation 3, verse 21. Daniel 7.22 is quoted in Revelation 20, verse 4. A remarkable statement in Micah 5, verse 2, describes the coming king as one whose goings forth are from old, from ancient days. There's nothing in this data to imply a pre-existence for the Messiah other than in the eternal counsels of God. 
echoed in the New Testament by the statement in Revelation 13, verse 8, that Jesus was the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Alan Siegel says, The important thing to notice is that there were no traditions explicitly linking the Messiah with angelic status, though the corner towards pre-existence was turned by suggesting that God knew the Messiah's name from creation. However, this is not pre-existence in the classical sense. It's important to observe with C.B. Caird that, and I quote here, the writers of the New Testament show remarkable unanimity in their treatment of the manhood of Christ. The article, The Development of the Doctrine of Christ in the New Testament, in the book Christ for Us Today, that's 1968. The linking of Psalm 8 and Psalm 110 is one of the most striking features of New Testament Christology, and it should always be prominent in any description of the person of Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews, for example, assumes that everyone will understand that Jesus is to be defined in terms of a corpus of Old Testament messianic texts. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, he gives us a group of them to show the relative position of Jesus to the angels. I note that the key to the Christological statement in chapter 1 is found in Hebrews 2 verse 5. It is the inhabited earth of the future about which we are speaking. The Messiah at that time will reign supreme. A.T. Hansen's comment on the Christology of Hebrews is important. It is not even certain that the name Son is unhesitatingly applied by the author to a pre-existent state. Hebrews 1 verse 2 could be rendered, He has in the last days spoken to us in the mode of a son, which would imply that sonship only began at the incarnation with lowercase i. That's from the book, The Image of the Invisible God, written in 1982. The linking of Psalm 8 and Psalm 110 is one of the most striking features of New Testament Christology, and it should always be prominent in any description of the person of Jesus. The writer to the Hebrews, for example, assumes that everyone will understand that Jesus is to be defined in terms of a corpus of Old Testament messianic texts. In chapter 1, he gives us a group of these to demonstrate the relative position of Jesus to the angels. It can scarcely have been the writer's view that Jesus was God in the classical sense, since it would have been sufficient to state this in order to prove that Jesus was superior to the angels, Moses and Aaron. The texts cited from the Old Testament by the New Testament writers do not provide any evidence 
for the category of personal pre-existence. Where Jesus is linked with the creation, it's clear that a reference to wisdom is implied. Compare that with Colossians 1, verses 15 and following. But there's all the difference in the world between personification and person. When Jesus is linked with pre-existent wisdom, or logos, it is his importance in the divine scheme that is being stressed. This is in keeping with the Jewish background of the New Testament. The Midrashic commentary on Genesis, the Bereshit Rabbah, opens with a paragraph describing the Torah as the blueprint which God consulted when he created the world. The Torah and wisdom are linked. In two places in the Babylonian Talmud, we learn that seven things existed before the creation. The Torah, repentance, paradise, Gehenna, the throne of glory, the temple, and the name of the Messiah. Appropriate biblical references are given for the pre-existence of each item. This well-defined category of pre-existence in the counsels of God provides the key to Paul's seeing the Messiah as the central reason for the creation. It was in, through, but not by, and it was for Jesus that God created everything, Colossians 1 verse 15. Thus Christ takes over the place of the Torah, which had been for the rabbis the reshit, or the beginning, the sum total head and first fruits in which all had come into existence. C.B. Caird points out that neither the fourth gospel nor Hebrews ever speaks of the eternal word or wisdom of God in terms which compel us to regard it as a person. That's a quotation from C.B. Kerr's book, The Language and Imagery of the Bible. If we do take the word or wisdom as pre-existent persons, it is because we are reading them in the light of later post-biblical classical Christology. Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, and indeed his whole gospel, shows no interest at all in the idea of pre-existence. Indeed, a careful reading of Luke 1 verse 35 suggests that the conception of the Messiah in Mary's womb marks the beginning of the existence of the Son of God. The point which has received far too little attention thus far in the debate is well developed by Raymond Brown's impressive analysis of the birth narratives in Matthew and Luke. That's from his book, The Birth of the Messiah, written in 1977. Luke establishes a direct causal relationship between the overshadowing of Mary by divine power and Holy Spirit, and the resulting creation of the Son of God happens at that point. 
in the womb of Mary. In Luke 1, verses 32 to 35, Christology is strictly within Old Testament categories, proved by the parallel with Genesis 1 and the explicit prediction of 2 Samuel 7, used in just the same way by the Qumran Essenes. The fragment I note is from K4 for Q243. The crucial line reads, He will be said to be Son of God, and they will call him Son of the Most High. The fatherhood of God is promised by 2 Samuel 7 to a future descendant of David. I will be a father to him, and he will be my son. The relationship of father and son is to be established in the future. Thus for Luke, the promised one now comes into existence as the son of God and son of David. And God becomes his father at his conception. Raymond Brown rightly calls Luke's view conception Christology, which of course is quite different from adoptionism and certainly not Chalcedonian. The crucial passage in Luke 1, verses 32 to 35, sets the tone for the whole Lucan Christology and eschatology and is carefully placed within the Old Testament framework. With Raymond Brown, Fitzmaier insists that, and here I quote from Fitzmaier, in Lucan theology, there is no question of Jesus' pre-existence or incarnation. That's from Fitzmaier in the Anchor Bible series, Comment on Luke. Raymond Brown points to the obvious difficulty presented to those schools in classical Christology. His observations may be taken as a symbol of the tensions being felt between the demands for adherence to classical creeds and the very different picture drawn by the synoptics. Brown says that in Luke, and here I quote his exact words, there is no suggestion of an incarnation whereby a figure who was previously with God takes on flesh. For pre-existence Christology, the conception of Jesus is the beginning of an earthly career, but not the begetting of God's Son. In the commentary, I shall stress that Matthew and Luke show no knowledge of pre-existence. For them, the conception was the becoming or begetting of God's Son. Raymond Brown points out further that the harmonization whereby John's pre-existent word takes on flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary is attested only in the post New Testament period. Luke's conception Christology, and here Raymond Brown says this, has embarrassed many Orthodox theologians, since in pre-existence Christology, a conception by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb does not bring 
about the existence of God's Son. But Luke is seemingly unaware of such a Christology conception, for Luke is causally related to divine sonship for Luke. I note too the remarks of J.A.T. Robinson in his Human Face of God. He says this, Luke presupposes that Christ is brought into existence as Son of Mary and Son of God simultaneously by the creative act of the Holy Spirit. His link to God at the beginning is established not by pre-existence, but by the line of human descent. The same point can be made in Matthew 1, verse 18, which describes not the birth of Jesus, but his genesis or origin. See, for example, the article by Christa Stondal in Quis et Unde, written in 1960. What is said about Luke may be said also about Peter's sermons in Acts and his epistles. The Messiah has appeared in accordance with God's ancient promises. His position as Lord and Messiah has been established by his ascension, according to Acts 2, verse 26. But there's no hint here that he was not the Messiah until the moment of exaltation. Rather, his baptism and resurrection are decisive moments in the progress of the Son of God towards his session at the right hand of the Father, as foreseen by the all-important Psalm 110, verse 1. It remains only for heaven to retain him until the apocatastasis of all things, the restoration of all things, of which times the prophets spoke. Acts 3, verse 21. This is, of course, Jewish Christology and eschatology, but it proceeds from the leading Christian spokesman and close associate of Jesus, and may therefore be reckoned as normative for Christianity. It is important to note with E.G. Selwyn that we are not entitled to say that Peter was familiar with the idea of Christ's pre-existence with the Father before the Incarnation. Peter has not extended his belief in Christ's divinity to an affirmation of his pre-existence. And the same view spans Peter's career from beginning to end. There is no evolution from a so-called low to a so-called high Christology. The Synoptic Gospels and the Book of Acts present us with no doctrine of pre-existence or incarnation. Yet they are written late. We may not therefore plead a development from primitive to mature Christology and justify a pre-existence Christology on that basis. A.T. Hansen sees this as what he calls a puzzling fact in his book, The Image of the Invisible God. 
but the puzzle may be solved easily by asking how far the data in Paul and John may have been forced to conform to the later classical Christology. Might it not be an equally valid exercise to see if they cannot be reconciled with their brother apostle Peter and with Luke, whose writings comprise more of the New Testament documents than any other writer. There is a need to weigh the merits of Maurice Wilde's suggestion that, and I quote, within the Christian tradition, the New Testament has for long been read through the prism of the later conciliar creeds. Talk of Jesus' pre-existence, or probably in most, perhaps in all cases, to be understood on the analogy of the pre-existence of the Torah to indicate the eternal divine purpose being achieved through him rather than pre-existence of a fully personal kind. That's from Maurice Wilde's book, The Remaking of Christian Doctrine, written in 1974. Philippians chapter 2. The difficulty of this passage is suggested by the vast literature associated with it. Its terms are sufficiently problematic to allow for preconceived ideas about what it is supposed to say to play a large role in interpretation. It ought not surely, therefore, to be taken, as it often is, as the starting point for a doctrine of pre-existence in Paul. This would be justified only if we had already found clear evidence for this elsewhere. Firstly, we should note that it's not uncommon for Paul to urge his disciples to follow the ethical example of Jesus. Romans chapter 15 verses 1 to 5, Paul says this, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it's written, now the God of patience and consolation grants you to be like-minded one toward another according to Messiah Jesus. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. Paul says, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Ephesians 5 verse 2. Walk in love as Christ gave himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 6, You became followers of us and of the Lord. The suffering of Jesus is held up as a model in the synoptics also. Mark 10 verses 44 and 45. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be the slave of of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for all. Similarly, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 25, 
We read this, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And then follows a quotation from Isaiah, It would not be unreasonable to begin with the hypothesis that the exhortation in Philippians 2 is along these lines. If it speaks of a pre-existent life of Jesus, it would indeed be unique in Paul's epistles. In describing a decision made in eternity, the abandonment of eternal godhood in favor of becoming man. The warning of A. H. McNeil in 1923 still has important force. A. H. McNeil said, Paul is begging the Philippians to cease from dissensions and to act with humility towards each other. In 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he's exhorting his readers to be liberal in almsgiving. It is asked whether it would be quite natural for him to enforce these two simple moral lessons by incidental references and the only reference he ever makes to the vast problem of the Incarnation. And it is thought by many that his homely appeals would have more effect if he pointed to the inspiring example of Christ's humility and self-sacrifice in his human life as in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, where he says, I exhort you by the meekness and forbearance of Christ. McNeil suggests the following paraphrase. Though Jesus was, throughout the whole of his life, divine, yet he did not think it a privilege to be maintained at all costs to be treated as on an equality with God, but of his own accord he emptied himself of all self-assertion of divine honor by adopting the nature of a slave. That's from New Testament teaching in the light of St. Paul's, written in 1923. Next, it should be noted that the subject of our passage is Messiah Jesus, the order of the words giving prominence to the title, it is Messiah who is under discussion here. It would be most odd for Paul to apply this title to a person before the birth of Jesus, and it seems strange to suggest that a pre-existing person of the Godhead would have consciously decided not to retain his position as God. There is much in the history of the exegesis of this passage to show how preconceptions have controlled its interpretation. Translations will tend to add an and between the words lavon and en omiomati, giving the impression that the words he emptied himself by becoming a slave and being made in the likeness of men. However, if the poem is punctuated with low mire and the and is omitted, 
there is no necessity for that connection to be made. So the being made in the likeness of men may then be joined in sense with the following, he emptied himself. The point will certainly not decide our exegesis, and it seems wrong to say, as Talbot does, that the structure of the lines must determine its meaning. However, it's a mistake to add the word end after lavon, citing C.F. Mole to the effect that, quote, in the New Testament, there is no exception to the rule that an aorist participle denotes an action prior to that of the main verb, with the possible exception of two passages in Acts. Some would translate, he emptied himself in death, having taken the form of a slave, having appeared as man. However, if ekenosen is to refer to an incarnation, it is clear that Jesus did not empty himself, having first become a slave. So it's better to render the sentence, he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave. As to the meaning of the crucial terms of the hymn, it seems to this writer that an interpretation within messianic categories is the right one. It is, after all, Messiah Jesus who is being described. Robert Strimple reveals that for years he tried, like Warfield and Murray, to use Strimple's words, he tried to maintain the view of Lightfoot that Paul uses morphie in the sense it had acquired in Greek philosophy. But I have to conclude that there's very little evidence to support the conclusion that Paul uses morphie in such a philosophical sense here, and that my determination to hold on to that interpretation was really rooted in its attractiveness theologically. The point illustrates the detrimental influence of Greek non-Messianic ways of thinking in exegesis. Morphi, it turns out, when the word is examined in a biblical context, has to do with a visible form, as in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 14 where we read, So his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. One does not need to establish that morphi, doxa, and ikon are entirely synonymous in order to maintain the idea that the human Jesus is being described as the representative of the one God, reflecting his glory as a divine human being. Ridabos and many others admit the parallel with Adam, though Ridabos is uneasy about drawing the parallel too clearly, since Adam did not pre-exist. It should not be forgotten, I note, that the Christ in whose death and resurrection the new eon dawns is the Messiah of Israel. 
Romans 1, verses 2 to 4, Romans 9, verse 5. However much the name Christ in Pauline usage seems to have acquired the sense of a proper name, this does not mean that this designation has lost its official historic Israelite significance. Paul proclaims Christ as the eschatological bringer of salvation, whose all-embracing significance must be understood in the light of prophecy. So says Ridabos in his book, Paul. This is the proper framework for constructing both Pauline and New Testament Christology. And compare with that, of course, John chapter 20, verse 31. Jerome Murphy O'Connor appears to this writer to come closest to a reading which suits a messianic context. He notes that the notion of pre-existence is only part of the Vorverständnis or preconception with which exegetes approach the hymn. For the majority, it seems to be derived from an uncritical acceptance of the current consensus, an acceptance that is facilitated by the dogmatic understanding of Christ as the second person of the Trinity. So said Jerome Murphy O'Connor in Revue Biblique, written in 1976. Of particular value is the remark of Bartsch about the proper methodological approach to our passage. We cannot assume in the hymn a general and long-standing belief in pre-existence. The question is whether such a belief can be attributed to the community addressed by Paul. If we say yes, then we must demonstrate the origin of this notion of divine pre-existence. To find it in the Philippians 2 hymn is only tenable when all other possible interpretations have been exhausted. The key to the passage lies in the contrast between the royal status of the Messiah as God's vice-regent and his willingness to take the role and status of a servant. This is a theme found in the synoptics. The background in the Book of Wisdom reveals the destiny for the righteous who are to be clothed in royal raiment and stand with the confidence born of full authority in the midst of those who afflict them. Referring to the human being, the Son of Man, Paul may be saying simply that Jesus did not regard his being equal with God as something to take advantage of. Thus Jesus, as the Messiah, was entitled to royal status, representing God like the pre-fall Adam, who, according to the rabbis, was a figure of light. His face shone brighter than the sun. The glory of the Messiah was indeed manifested on a special occasion 
at the Transfiguration, but he was normally seen as every other man. He was, however, only like other men, since he was sinless and therefore a unique human being. He never availed himself of the privilege that was his right as the second Adam, but poured out his life in service to others and humbled himself to suffer a criminal's death on the cross. The contrast between riches and poverty in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 is very much like the contrast in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 8, where again the question of royal status is in view. Paul said there, Now you are full, you are rich, you have reigned as kings without us. And I would to God that you were in fact reigning so that we might also be reigning with you. The reference here is to Paul's hope for rulership in the Messianic Kingdom to be revealed at the future parousia, or second coming. By contrast, Paul, following Jesus, has renounced all pretensions to royal status and is being treated as the scum of the earth, in verse 13, and is making himself slave to all. The king-slave motif applies most dramatically to Jesus as the Messiah and uniquely God's Son. But each Christian must follow his example by busying himself with service to others. Paul speaks of his own kenosis in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 to 11 and verse 20 and following. The language of Philippians 2, verses 6 to 8, reappears here. Be found being conformed, refashion, humiliation. This contrast between riches and poverty will much better account for 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 than Dunn's suggestion that there's a reference to Christ's material poverty. In this way, being rich may correspond to being in the form of God and becoming poor refers to renouncing divine status. It is interesting that in the Philippian passage, the initial contrast is between being in the form or status of God and taking the form or status of a slave, not man. The pre-existent Jesus as Son the traditional argument for a pre-existent son in the New Testament seems to be labored and complex. It is common to find commentators saying that Galatians 4 verse 4, God sent his son into the world, seems to imply that God's son was sent from heaven. So says Leon Morris in his review of Christology in the Making in the journal Themelios of 1982. But is this really so? The verb sent 
certainly does not normally carry any overtones of pre-existence. John the Baptist was sent. John 1 verse 6. Nicodemus thought that Jesus had come into the world. John 3 verse 2. All the prophets were sent. 2 Chronicles 36 verse 15. So also the disciples are sent. John 17 verse 18. Just as Jesus was sent. The state is sent by God. 1 Peter 2 verse 14. The fact that Paul emphasizes that Jesus was born of a woman, as he says, underlies the significance of his birth. Is there an unspoken reference here to the virgin birth? Being sent from God means no more than that God initiated the appearance of the Messiah, provided him in the fullness of time, and commissioned him. The uniqueness of Jesus, according to Luke, is his coming into existence as son in Mary's womb. Certainly nothing is said of a pre-existent son in Philippians 2. Too often the uncertain evidence of Philippians 2, Galatians 4 verse 4 and Romans 8 verse 3 is used to support an equally uncertain conclusion about personal pre-existence. The sending of the Spirit in Galatians 4 verse 6 is quite unreasonably taken by C.R. Holliday to imply personal pre-existence for the Son. We may agree, however, with A.T. Hansen that, and I quote, it is not even certain that the name Son is unhesitatingly applied by the writer of Hebrews to Jesus in a pre-existent state. Hebrews 1 verse 2 could be rendered, He has in the last days spoken to us in the mode of a son, which would imply that the sonship only began at what he calls the Incarnation. In a challenging chapter entitled The Problem of the Preexistence of the Son, that's in a book, The Christian Experience of the Trinity, written in 1983, J.P. Mackey is critical of the way in which the term son has often been divorced from its roots in the Old Testament. It is well known that texts referring to the Son, which had their original reference to the enthronement of the Davidic king, were used in the early resurrection kerygma. So now the title Son of God, which already indicates a uniquely obedient servant of Yahweh, can be used to claim that this one who was so shamefully executed, was God's expected anointed one. But this belief that the one who was obedient to death was now exalted to God's right hand and would rule God's future kingdom is still a long way from belief in a pre-existent divine figure 
who becomes man. The logical path to alleged pre-existence is a tortuous one, no matter what selection of authors we make. In connection with the pre-existence of the Messiah, Mackey quotes Vermesh, who says, The surviving sources are concerned only with the kind of notional pre-existence of the Messiah, insofar as his name, that's to say his essence and nature, preceded the formation of light by God on the first day of creation. In Jewish thought, the celestial pre-existence of the Messiah does not affect his humanity. Mackey adds that such pre-existence, and here I quote, is part and parcel of the revelation model in human imagining by which God, who is not bound by time, had in mind in eternity or before anything else was created, God had in mind the one who was the key to all existence, who would bring all to consummation and for whom, in whom, and through whom all, therefore, could be said to be created. Compare with that Colossians 1 verse 15. Mackey contends that talk of coming down from heaven points to the divine initiative behind the whole mission of Jesus. Belief in the virginal conception gives particular point to this notion since Jesus is, in some sense, inserted from outside into the human race by the action of the Holy Spirit. Language about existing before can therefore refer to God's plan before creation to send the Messiah. Compare with that 1 Peter 1 verse 20, which uses the same concept when it states that Jesus was the Lamb foreknown before creation. Mackey's conclusion is that if the Bible is to be normative for our belief, we simply may not pretend that Scripture gives us any substantial information about a second divine person or hypostasis distinct from God the Father and from the historical Jesus before Jesus was born or before the world was made. Many of the prominent contributors to the current debate about pre-existence believe that the humanity of Jesus is threatened when his person is thought of as pre-existing. John Knox states that, and here I quote, we can have the humanity without the pre-existence, and we can have the pre-existence without the humanity. There is absolutely no way of having both. That's from his book, The Humanity and Divinity of Christ, written in 1967.
Raymond Brown sounds a similar warning when he tells us that, and I quote Raymond Brown here, Johannine Christology has nurtured a widespread unconscious monophysitism, popular even today, in which Jesus is not really like us in everything but sin, but omniscient, unable to suffer or be tempted, and foreseeing the whole future. That's from Raymond Brown's book, The Community of the Beloved Disciple, written in 1979. John Robinson likewise sees the traditional view of pre-existence as destructive of the human personality of Jesus and notes that John, who calls Jesus a man more than any other writer and insists that the Father alone is the only true God, John 17, verse 3, has no intention at all of creating a docetic portrait. That's from J.T. Robinson's Human Face of God. The reaction, the reaction in John's epistles to such a false reading of his gospel bears this out fully. Significantly in 1 John 1 verse 2, John has deliberately substituted eternal life for word, with lowercase w, in an effort to counteract the tendency already at work to retroject the person Jesus back onto the eternal word. John sees the denial of the humanity of Jesus, the human Jesus, John sees this as the certain sign of opposition to the faith. 1 John 4, verse 2, 2 John 7. Later, a docetic streak runs through much of Alexandrian Christology and the link between Clement of Alexandria and Valentinus seems clear. Both insist that no true digestion or elimination took place in the Lord. This seems to be far removed from the scripture and common sense. But is the whole idea of anipostasia less so? That's to say that Jesus did not have a fully human personality. And could not the critically important conception Christology of Luke eliminate the whole problem of personal pre-existence and open up a new and true approach to the reading of John. The glory which the Johannine Jesus had with the Father before the world began, John 17, 5, can well be the glory promised in the divine plan. The glory already was given to the disciples in verse 22 had not, in fact, been given to them at all, literally, but it was promised. It remains a remarkable fact that Paul hardly ever, if at all, calls Jesus God. 
and seems to be unaware of any theoretical difficulty over Jesus being both God and man. May this not simply be because the one God of his Jewish monotheistic heritage is still the Father alone. As he said in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 6, 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, while the man, Messiah Jesus, in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, is God's unique representative embodying the divine majesty. I note that the frequently repeated assertion that for Gentiles the term Christ was little more than a meaningless proper name may in fact point to a devastating post-New Testament loss of biblical Christology, not, as we have so long been told, a legitimate development of it. Conclusion. When the concept of a pre-existent divine person is taken as the model and the exclusive model for Christology, it seems very difficult to ascribe to Jesus a real human personality genetically related to David through Mary. It is hardly satisfactory to dismiss the whole problem by simply restating the Chalcedonian definition and hoping that an anti-theoretical approach will resolve all difficulties. The problem may simply be a warning that we are not reading the scriptures in their own Hebraic context. This might not be surprising in view of the dramatic change which is likely to have been initiated in the faith when, within a few years after the death of the apostles, no Jewish leaders were left, and theology fell into the hands of the Greeks. Greek lack of sympathy for things messianic was natural, but not at all necessarily conducive to preserving the central thrust of the New Testament, that Jesus is the Messiah foretold by the Old Testament. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, it would appear, was early obscured by a translation via a misunderstanding of the Logos in John chapter 1 verse 1. He was transformed then by misunderstanding into Greek ways of thinking. The result seems eventually to have been the replacement of the real human individual by an abstraction. The remark of Geoffrey Lamp should challenge our generation. The Christological concept of the pre-existent son reduces the real socially and culturally conditioned personality of Jesus to the metaphysical abstraction human nature. According to this Christology, the eternal Son assumes a timeless human nature which owes nothing essential to geographical circumstances. It corresponds to nothing in the actual concrete world. Jesus Christ has not, on this theory, after all, 
really come in the flesh. That's from Jeffrey Lamp's book, God as Spirit, written in 1977. If, as D.M. Schola asserts, our tradition dances best to a docetic tune, as he said in lectures in Christology at Northern Baptist Seminary in 1986, it may be because it's the only tune most churchgoers have ever known. But a change to a Hebrew melody along the lines of Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 35, and Matthew 16, verse 16, may bring a refreshing new mood and enable us to see more truly what it means to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. John 20, verse 31.